three chairs, you know, and, and uh, getting out of that chair of, uh, of conflict and, and not settling for the chair of compromise and, and living to be a chair one follower of Christ. Being a first chair believer, amen? First chair believer. We started the year off and, and uh, you know, and we talked about fasting and finding God's way for us, the right way for us, the right way for our kids, the right way for our substance. How many you know God has a right way for you? Proverbs 14, 12 says there's a way that seems right to you, but the end is separated from the very thing that God declared at the beginning for your life. Remember that God had a dream about you and about your future, and that dream is, is what he used to squeeze you into, uh, into the shape that you are and to make you who you are. And Then he, he, he distinguished you and he, he empowered you and gave you the ability to fulfill God's dream. That's why we're blessed. We get to live the dream, his dream, amen? We get to live his dream. But there's a right way. A lot of us think that if we take our own way, we'll end up where God intended. That doesn't work. We've got to do this thing God's way. Now, we've got to live God's way. And, and, and you know, and, and we went into, uh, into physical fitness and tra- talking about getting conditioned and getting in shape and being people who are uh, fit for the kingdom. Because in order to accomplish the purpose of God, you can't be weak. Come on, you can't be weak. You've got to be strong. Ephesians 6.10, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. You've got to get strong. You've got to work out. You've got to pick up the weight and press it. The same weight that can hurt you can also make you better. The same weight that can throw out your back can make your back stronger. It is not the weight, but how we handle the weight. So we've got to go to God and look for instruction and realize that His, his purpose and His desire is not against us. He's not against you today. He's for you. He's not trying to hurt you. He's trying to help you. He's not putting you down. He's trying to lift you up. Amen? And today I'm kind of pumped up and excited because we're starting now on families and being a first chair family, being first chair husbands and first chair wives and first chair parents and first chair kids. Come on. You know, uh, God's opened the doors, and, and, uh, and you know, it's, it's awesome. We and God are now uh, the largest landowners in the South Ridge Land Development Project. Isn't that cool? And we're believing, God, that we're going to be the healthiest people in the region. Hello? Come on. We're going to keep, we're going to keep challenging you. Strap on them tennis shoes. Amen? You know, run your race. Get in shape. It's important that you live long enough to enjoy the life that God has for you. Amen? But, but we don't want to stop there. We want to be first chair in every realm of life. So we're going to start talking about being first chair families. And today, uh, what excites me, because I love to talk to the men. So today, you know, and, and ladies, feel free to take notes and help your man remember. Hallelujah. And, uh, uh, and guys, well, I'm not married. Well, you need this. And, uh, uh, you know, and I'm telling you, men, God, God has uh, a call on your life. Come on, don't sit there like nervous Nelly. Come on, guys. God's got a call on your life, and he expects you to be a man of God. Amen? He expects you to get a backbone, go get the gold that you are created to carry. Amen? Well, let's jump in here. First Chronicles chapter 12. These were the men who came to David at Ziglag. While he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish, and they were among the mighty men, helpers in the war. These are men who came to David. They are men who came to David. They were mighty men. They were skilled men. They were not drugged to church by their wives. Come on, men. 
You know, uh, why is this in the book? So that we know how we're supposed to be living. You know, that we're supposed to be mighty men, helpers in the war. Now, they're, not, they're not fighting against everything, but they're fighting alongside and making stuff happen. They are armed. They're armed. That means that they're equipped. And in order to be equipped, you have to be able to receive instruction. So, you know, the ability to, to receive training. They could use uh, both their right hand and their left. Look, look, at, the ne- look at this. They're using their right hand and their left. They're shooting bows and throwing stones. These guys are awesome. If you read, I encourage you, go read, uh, you know, through these chapters. You'll find out one place that said they had the face of a lion, the speed of a deer. They were in shape. Thank you for that huge response right there. Uh, let's drop down to verse 32. Of the sons of Issachar, they had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. They had understanding of the times to know what God's people ought to do. Not what the world says we should do. They, they, weren't, they weren't, you know, uh, dug in on what they thought they should do. Well, we think, no, what does God's word say we should do? They've sought God and found his way for us, his way for our kids, his way for our substance. Amen? Look at verse 33. There's 50,000 of them who went out to battle, expert in war, with all weapons of war. Stout-hearted men who could keep ranks, expert in all weapons of war, not just one. They were not a one-trick pony. But they had their act together. Man, they, they, they understood the word. They understood prayer. They understood worship. They understood giving. They understood discipleship. You know, if you want to know what we're believing for our men, is that there'll be men who are in the word. There'll be men who know how to pray. There'll be men who live and love to worship God. They'll have a generous spirit. And they'll be strong disciples of Jesus. Come on, these guys, in all weapons of war, they were men who could keep ranks. No ego, just purpose. You know, what we have to do, you know, often I think we end up, you know, we kind of cry when we don't get our way. Come on, keep rank. Keep rank, stout-hearted men. No ego, just a purpose. Well, what's our purpose? Our purpose is leading in a way that pleases God. We need to be leading in life and leading our home in a way that pleases God. Amen? Look, look at somebody close to you and say, lead like you're called. You know, this thing is not a burden. It's a calling. Right? Well, do I have to lead? Oh, shut up and get your big boy pants on. Come on, take the floaties off and move away from the shallow end of the pool. Let's grow up and be the men that God's called us to be. Amen? You know what's odd is in, in our society... There are not very many people who can testify that they are happily married. And I, I know people that say that they've actually only met one or two couples that are happily married. Our society is built and wired and expecting devastation, chaos. You know, the average marriage in America today doesn't make it. Fifty percent of the marriages don't make it. And, and that's not only true outside of the church, that's true inside. Well, I think we ought to change that. I think that we ought to have the strongest marriages in this entire region. 
that our families ought to be happy, healthy, blessed, and anointed. Amen? Well, it's not going to happen just because we come up with some, uh, you know, catchphrase or a cute logo. It's going to happen because we get a backbone and say, you know what, we're willing to fight for marriage. We're willing to do what it takes to build strong families. Who's been married uh, uh, in here for more than 30 years? Look around the room. That's pretty awesome. That's cool. Anybody, anybody beat 40? Look, look, look at that. That's awesome. <laughs> anybody beat 50? Whoa. How, how many years were you married, bro? 55 years. Well, let me just tell you, if he can do it, so can you. Right? I mean, if, if, we can, if, we can, if we can just get our mindset right, if we can just renew our mind, I'm telling you, you know, what's going on in our world? We've got we to gotta do something about it. Well, where do we start? At your house. Amen? We're going to start at your house. You know, chair two, chair three, husbands, they're just limping along in life, injured, many ways dishonoring God and their spouse. We just got to understand that most of the time when something's not working, whether it be our marriage or anything, but we're talking about our marriage, when something's not working, all we have to do is go back to the basics. You know, if something's not working on the computer, you don't just pick it up and haul it out and throw it away and head down to Best Buy. You start checking stuff out. Let's check the power cord. Let's check the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the stuff. Obviously, I don't work on the computer, but let's, let's check that stuff, you know. Not throw mine away and go down to Best Buy. No, uh, trace some wires, you know, look at the modem, find out what in the world is going on. How about this? Reach for the manual. I think what we have to do is learn to trust in and reach for God's revealed plan in his book. He's told us how to do this. Well, my marriage is pretty much what it is and what it's always going to be. We're going to choke you out for Jesus. You haven't met my wife. You never want to say that to me. My wife is not very bright. We know she picked you. Uh, Come on. We need to develop a a vision to actually produce in our lives the very life-giving relationship that God intended when he ordained marriage in the first place. You know, well, we've got chaos and we've got, you know, we, we've got struggle. Okay, uh, the Bible says in Corinthians, we, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen, because the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are unseen are eternal. Where you are today, listen, it, can, can you just open up your heart and, and receive with meekness the engrafted Word of God? Receive the seed of God's Word and realize that that seed is going to produce a harvest. When you take a seed this spring, put it in the ground, and you're putting it in the garden, you know what's coming up. And you're not looking at the seed, but you're looking out at the harvest that that seed is going to produce. And I want you to start looking at the harvest that God's Word is going to produce in your life, not at what is seen, but at what is unseen. It's not invisible, you got to, you, but you can see it, right? You can see it because God's Word says, My people are going to dwell in a peaceful habitation, a secure dwelling, a quiet resting place. God said that when you put your entire trust in the Master Jesus, you'll live the life you were meant to and your whole house too. So we can look at, the, look at the harvest and let faith begin to arise in us that if we do this thing God's way, we're going to have a blessed life. Amen? 
I said, we're going to have a blessed life. Get a vision of a first chair family and let's produce it in our life. See, a first chair people, they see marriage as a covenant with God and one another. It's an important covenant, unbreakable bond, and it's made between two people and God. A second chair marriage, they see it as a conditional contract. They're hoping it works. They want it to work, but there are some strings attached to those vows. Why? Well, because they don't submit to God's word as the authority in their life. A third chair marriage sees it as a legal convenience. They live together often without marriage because they don't see the high calling of marriage in the eyes of God. Some go ahead and get married because they might earn more respect or get a tax break or insurance coverage is better. It's a legal convenience. Well, how did we get to this place? Well, look at how the husband is usually depicted in media. He's forever at the office or the bar. He's flirtatious. He's unfaithful. He's driven by money or by power. He's a complete dunce around the kids and more interested in sex than he is in his next breath. He's prone to fistfights when drunk, but he drives a really nice car and has a washboard stomach. That's how media predicts the husband. But a first chair marriage. You know, what's he going to experience? Well, he's going to experience deep, fulfilling relationship, affection, and sex. He's going to build longer, uh, 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 loving homes. He's going to have godly children. He's going to receive from his wife and his kids the kind of respect and support that he needs to fulfill his God-given destiny on earth. God-designed marriage is what every sensible man wants. If you look at the end result of a God-designed marriage, there's not a man in the world that's married that doesn't want that result. So why try on other kinds of relationships that you weren't created for? Why go for a TV marriage, regardless of how glitzy it looks, why do that when the guy who created it says, I've built a road map for you? You don't need to end up discouraged, disappointed, and a failure. Put your ego in a brown paper sack and drop, kick it to the curb. You know, the thing that separates us from great success in marriage is the fact that we just simply don't understand the biblical basis for responsibility and the roles of marriage, and we don't choose to fulfill them. Why? Because sometimes it's not easy. It gets tough. But we've got a job description. Look at a man and tell him, you've got a job description. Look at Ephesians 5.23. The husband is the head of the wife, also as Christ is the head of the church. He's the Savior of the body. Look at this. Man is to be the head. He is the one who is responsible, the one who takes care of the needs of those who are beneath his headship. Notice it does not say, husbands, try to be the head. It says, you the head. When God looks at you, you're the responsible party, and you've got to take care of the needs of those I place beneath you. you. God didn't intend marriage roles to be determined by competency like in the corporate world. That's not God's plan. Well, my wife's better than this. My, well, you're still responsible. 
God fashioned man to lead and the woman to support and respond to his leadership in the home. And a chair one marriage, let's just get this out in front. A chair one marriage is one where the Lord's plan rules supreme. We're going to do it God's way. If we're going to be chair one people, remember, as for me and my house, we're seeking the Lord. And the Lord alone. We're going to go to his word. We're going to see what he has to say. And if you do it right, you know what it means, men. It means that being the head of your house means that you will ensure that those that you lead are happy, content, well provided for, protected, and fulfilled. Amen? Look at this. Ephesians 5, 23 again. Then we'll read through 28. The husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, and he gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Husbands, check it out. You're just going to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Look at the points in this verse about how he loves the church and why, what he's doing. That he might sanctify and purify the church by the washing of the word. That he might present it to himself, a glorious church, without spot, without wrinkle. That it should be holy and without blemish. It, blemish. If you look at it, Christ's role as the head of his bride is to bring her to wholeness, holiness, and beauty. To help her achieve the full measure of what God has for her. Notice, everything that Christ does and the reasons for doing it is concerned with what he can do for her, not what she does for him. Husbands, it's what you can do for her, not what she can do for you. You know what we have? We have a problem with our swing. You know, uh, how many golfers are in the house? How many people own golf clubs? A lot more hands. Okay. Checking out our honesty and transparency here. You know, uh, if, you, if you go golfing and you get to the tee box and, and, and you tee up the ball and you take a few practice swings and, and you get ready and you approach the ball and, and you swing the club, uh, every once in a while, every once in a while, you find the sweet spot. You're not even swinging that hard. And... There's just this perfect little sound that comes off the face of your club. And the ball takes off like a bullet. It goes right out there. And, and you know, I love it when it kind of starts low and then starts to lift. And, and it's, it's amazing. And you stand there and you're looking around wishing the camera crew was there. Where's my camera crew? It's awesome. Long and straight. Most of the time. When a guy approaches the ball, takes his practice swing, and he hits the ball, it takes him 30 minutes to find the sucker. Okay? You know, why does it take you so long to golf? Because he's looking for his ball. He can't find it. And it's all over the place, or it dribbles out in front of him just a few feet. Or, well, what's wrong? It, something's wrong with the swing, right? Got a golf pro in the house. Something's wrong with the swing. Well, if you correct the swing, you make contact, you get great success. If you don't correct the swing, you just look like a hacker the rest of your life. 
And what happens with us men is that our swing is way out of balance. Most of the time, we are not making content. We do not live in the sweet spot. Now, I wish you could stand up here and look at the men's faces. That's right. Woe is me. Well, let's correct our swing. Here's the problem is that usually too many husbands, you know, it's, it's, remember that, that clown that, that with the sand in the bottom and you knock him over and he pop back up? But after a while, he's always leaning to one side or the other. He's never really standing straight back up. So life starts smacking you around, and you're back up, but you're just not straight. And most of the time, we either swing way too aggressive or way too passive. The aggressive swing. You know, that's the guy who throws his weight around and acts as if he's the center of the solar system. Don't say Amen. Aggressors do more than just hold the reins of the family. They yank them selfishly. If you swing in this direction, I have bad news for you. You're not much appreciated. You're not admired. You're not respected by your wife or your children. The more you dominate, the more you'll live alone in your own house. Stranger, isolated, whether you're aware of it or not. You'll not get out of marriage what you want or what you need. You'll be trapped in a web of illusion. Listen, you've mistaken power for strength and control for unity. We've got to correct your swing. But a lot of guys, they don't have that aggressive swing. They have this real passive swing. And contrary to what you think, an overly passive husband is not less selfish than an aggressor. He's simply learned how to get what he wants in a different way way he allows somebody else to take the heat while he takes it easy he sits back passive apathetic and then he releases the leadership role and eventually if he's not careful he abandons the relationship altogether if you swing in this direction believe it or not you wind up with the same results as the aggressor you're not appreciated you're not admired you're not respected by your wife or your children. You've mistaken detachment for peace and irresponsibility for blamelessness. So what do we do? We correct our swing, and we get our swing in balance. That's what a chair one husband does, is he gets balance in his life, finds the place, the sweet spot, a place to grow, flourish, and succeed. And as you become more authentic, responsible, and a caring leader to your wife and kids, you'll enjoy the marriage that you've always wanted. It's the one that pleases God. You know, Jesus referred to some leaders in his day, not that we should emulate them, but that we should learn from them. In Mark chapter 10, verse 42 and 43, Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over over them. But Jesus said in the next verse, it shouldn't be among you. Whoever desires to become great, he should be the servant. Look at what it says. First, look at that phrase, they lord it over them. That means to use personal power to force a weaker person to submit. A well-known secret about bully husbands. You're not leading through love or strength, but from fear and weakness. You can't lord 
it over them. And that next phrase, it says to exercise authority over someone. That means to pull rank. That's not genuine leadership. Who's the head of this house anyways? Oh, be quiet. Have you, have you ever had to wonder, what's the head of my body? If you're where you're supposed to be, ain't no argument. I've never had, to, never had to stand out in the parking lot and prove I passed through this church. Be who God's called you to be, and you're going to be the head of your house. Authority doesn't make you a leader. It just gives you the responsibility to be one. Always reach for the opportunity. Never hide behind the label. I'm the head of this house. Well, then be the head. There's a key to her heart, which also unlocks your happiness. We know that the head husband's supposed to be the head in a way that promotes and enables her to achieve joint roles. So what are the husband's responsibilities? And before I go into this list, I want to encourage you men. That, you know, you, you, you have to understand that God would never ask you to do something he hadn't already equipped you to succeed at. I said God would never ask you to do something that he hadn't already equipped you to succeed at. That would be kind of cruel, wouldn't it, for God to set a task in front of you and say, here's what I want you to do, and then go back and sit down and watch you fail and kind of giggle because he knew there's no way you could ever pull that off. So what God's asking of us men, he's empowered us to not only accomplish, but to do good at it. So when you're making the list, here's my responsibilities. I'm going to be a chair one husband. I'm going to go for it. When you make your list, realize that God is going to empower you. That's what his grace is. His grace is his ability operating through you. It's not a blanket to hide under, but it's an empowering agent that enables you to do exactly what God's asked you to do. Are you ready for the list, guys? Get your pen out and start writing. These tapes are 300 bucks. Okay. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Verse 28. So husbands, love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Ephesians 5.33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects him. Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Are you getting the point? Here's your list, husbands. Love. Here's what you need to do. You need to love. Well, why did God have to tell man to love? Well, because this type of love he's talking about does not come naturally to anybody. And men, we're geared for pursuit, for winning, for work, for pioneering, for sex, for protecting the youngins back at the farm. And God says, what I want you to do now is love. And he used a word there that most of us don't really understand. Genuine love, the type of love our wives need and deserve, is different from the type that we operate in. So we got to slow down and intentionally learn how to love the God way and get the God result that God's promised. You know what you need to do? You need to try to think like you're subject to think her thoughts and to dream her dreams. You need to ask questions, listen to the answers, and observe very carefully. 
You need to comb through the instruction book for little nuggets that will help you, and you need to practice. You should study your wife. Come on. They are not all the same. You need to study, invest wholeheartedly in learning her natural preferences, her innermost desire. Her deepest needs. Husband, love. This is not just a duty, but it's the challenge and the privilege of a lifetime to love your wife. But our problems is that the English word love is so inexact. It's frustrating. Because, you know, we use it in all kinds of applications. I love my friends. I love, you know, you got a grade school crush and you think you're loving. I love chocolate sponge cake. I love sex and Seattle Seahawks. And then God says, love your wife. And you looking at her like she's a piece of chocolate sponge cake. That's the wrong kind of love. Fortunately, the Greek language is very helpful. There's two different words in the Greek that are translated for the English word love. Actually, there's three. There's phileo, agape, and eros. And eros is where we get our English word erotic which obviously refers to sexual attraction. And most of the men in the room realize since they were about 13, they've been very aware of this type of attraction. It requires no need of a relationship or even another individual. They just got it going on. But we're talking phileo and agape, okay? No, don't go too far there, okay? (laughs) Phileo and agape, what God's talking about, husband's love, what he's saying is what you need to be, you need to become a man, a, an agape man. First chair men understand agape. And they recognize when they're operating in phileo. And I'm going to give you five keys that are differences between agape and phileo so that you can go home and love your wife. Number one, phileo Listen to this. Phileo requires two people to appreciate each other. Agape has no such requirement. See, phileo is mutual in that both people must have some degree of respect for one another. Agape can be entirely one-sided. Well, she doesn't respect me. That has nothing to do with agape. When God said in his word, husbands, love your wife, he did not say if she respects you. Well, I'll love her when she does what the Bible tells her to do. That's none of your business what God told her to do. God's talking to you. Quit being a girl. Be a man. And love regardless of any of that. Number two, phileo is conditional. And if certain requirements aren't met, phileo can end. Agape comes with no strings attached. Because it's based upon an internal commitment of one person to another regardless. So there's absolutely no strings attached to agape love. I'm just going to love. I'm going to love that woman no matter what she says, no matter what she does, no matter how I feel, no matter what's going on, I'm going to love that woman. Number three, phileo relationships might last for a certain length of time and then suddenly stop due to circumstances. Agape exists, period. It is, has no relation to time. Well, we just fell out of love. Well, you were never in agape. Or you don't understand agape. Don't you love the way God loves you? 
Have you ever had one of them days when you did something and, you know, and you actually thought, oh, my God. It's over. You know, it, it, I have so offended God. And then you go to him and all you get from him is more of his love. Isn't that awesome? Don't you realize that, that, that when that happens, and I'll just tell you that in my life when that has happened, you know what it's done? It's made me love God more. It's made me want to never, ever, ever do that again. Because I felt for a moment maybe what I thought he felt towards me, and I just went, no way. If, if, if he would love me through that, man, I want to please him even more. You've got to understand the power of this God love, agape. That if, if, men, if we can just learn to love this way, the power of God will work on our wives, on our children, on everybody around us. Where am I? Number four? Phileo requires some level of emotional attachment and personal affection to thrive. Agape flourishes in the soil of commitment. Any positive emotional experience only serves to enhance it. It's just commitment. I said it's just commitment. The emotion side of it, that's going to get healthy and strong, but it's not directing it. And number five, phileo can be a blend of both selfish and self-giving attitudes and actions. Agape, on the other hand, always seeks to benefit the other, often at the expense of self. Man, we have a responsibility that starts with a decision just to love. And our love is to be constant, unconditional, sacrificial, and without end. And it's the promise of agape that swept her off her feet in the first place. That's the promise that attracted her to your life. And then we slip out into phileo or even eros. And, and we, we forget all about uh, agape and we start attaching strings. And that puts you back in that second chair because you're compromising the love position that God has called you to be in. And it's not long till you slide down into complacency and you just sit back and you, and you well, she's going to make some decisions and they're all up to her. Well, how could she do anything else because there's no real love in that relationship? You're the head of the house. You've been called by God with a job description to love. It's your calling. It's not your burden. So, remove the strings. Trust me. Trust God's Word. Take some time and begin to develop love for your wife. Get rid of all of that other stuff. Push it to the side. This is going to crush your ego. That's okay. You're going to be a bigger, better man at the end of this thing. And you're going to end up having the family and the, and the environment in which peace can thrive. See, we take Isaiah 32, 18. My people are going to live in a peaceful habitation, a secure dwelling, a quiet resting place. And we think we can pull that off because we're nice guys. No, that happens because agape produces it. It's the fruit of that seed. But if you don't sow that seed, you ain't getting that fruit. we got a golf pro, but we also have a master gardener who will sit you down and explain to you that if you don't plant the right seed, you won't get the right crop. Well, I want God to bring peace to my house. Then you're going to have to sow agape. 
You have to. Because that's what's going to produce that harvest. Don't think for a minute that, well, I don't need to make any changes. You know, if God wants my wife happy, he'll just make her happy. Well, you might got, get hit by a truck on the way out of the parking lot then, and we can say, glory be to God. Come on, gentlemen. Let's be men who have a backbone. Let's be those guys who, are, who, who, who understand how to use all the weapons of war. That we can use our right hand and our left. Let's be those guys who are stout-hearted and can keep rank and who will hold the position that God's called us to hold. Amen? Close your book. Bow your head. Let me